0: Now, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read Exodus 4. And uh, we join Moses and his family on the journey down to Egypt, where they are lodging overnight in an encampment. And we read these words in verse 24 that it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. The Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Of course, a very strange, mysterious text. I think we could say in a very strange and mysterious passage of Scripture. Now, um, last Lord's Day, as I mentioned just before the reading, we left Moses uh, ready at last uh, to return to Egypt. Uh, God was calling him there, and although he tried to resist that, he came to a place where he understood that it is right and good for himself to do what God commands him to do. And perhaps in a way it's strange that when he leaves Mount Sinai and goes back home uh, to his wife and family and his father-in-law, it's strange that in verse 18 he asks permission of his father-in-law to go to Egypt. Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. I say that it's strange in a way to ask permission because when God calls you to do something, uh, you do it. It's as simple as that. You you don't get permission to do what God has commanded you to do. And there's a sense in which you could wonder, well, is this right of Moses to put things like that? Or even is Moses in some way stalling? Is he hoping that if the permission is refused, then he can't go? Well, I doubt very much that that's what's in Moses' mind although it is possible for some people to put family duties and family commitments before what the Lord has called them to do uh, on one or two occasions in the new testament you'll discover that the lord is commissioning people to go and to preach in his name and they first of all ask permission to go back home and to do something let me go home first and bury my father which Strange as it sounds, doesn't mean that the father had actually died, but let me see to my household affairs until my father has passed away, and then I will go. The Lord famously responded to that by saying that no one who puts his hand to the plough, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me first go and bid goodbye to those who are in my household. Questions like that. It very much depends on the motive for asking that. If the Lord discerns that there's a stalling spirit, then he doesn't allow it. If, on the other hand, what you want to do is very straightforward and right, then it's permissible. And in some ways, only you and the Lord knows whether you are trying to stall proceedings or not. I've known some people who felt a call to the ministry, for example, and they told me that this has to happen and this has to happen and this has to happen. I think what they really meant was that they would like this, that, and the next thing to happen. Um, God can take care of things. You have to discern whether you are stalling proceedings or whether there is a genuine call upon you to finish something before you do something else. Now, what Moses does here is not stalling. I would say it was Christian courtesy. That's all. He's got duties. And he's got responsibilities. These duties and responsibilities are to Jethro, who is his father-in-law, who has given him a home, and of course a wife. And Jethro also happens to be his employer, and has been for the last 40 years. And hence Moses deems it only right just to ask permission to leave his employment and to go down to Egypt. That doesn't mean that Moses would not go if Jethro refused it, but it's still right and courteous to do it. And that reminds us of our basic principle as Christians, that we always honor our relationships and responsibilities to others, whether they are Christians or even still in the world. And it's a reminder to us that if if we do that, we will discover that As I said said a few weeks ago, God tends to work at both ends of the line. Just as He's worked in Moses, so He will have worked in Jethro, already hard to go along with it. Now, it doesn't always work at both ends of the line. And in fact, here we're going to find an example where God has not worked at both ends of the line. But He usually does. And very often we are surprised to find he's worked at both ends of the line. I think I said, when I was dealing with that at the time, just a few weeks back, that sometimes you're preparing to speak to people, you're fearing the worst, but God has worked at both ends of the line. He hasn't just prepared you and your mouth, but he's prepared him and her and his ears. So he usually works at both ends of the line, although as we will see, sometimes not. Here he has, Jethro is willing to release Moses from his employment. And of course it means that his family are leaving too. Zipporah, his daughter, and his grandsons. Now I suppose it's interesting, and I shouldn't let it go really without commenting on it, that Moses doesn't tell Jethro everything that God's told him. He hasn't told him that he's going back down there too fulfill a call that he originally felt 40 years ago... to actually lead over 2 million people... out of bondage... in the most powerful nation upon the earth... Uh, somewhere else. It doesn't tell them any of that. In fact, what he says is... let me go and return to my brethren in Egypt... to see whether they are still alive. Let me just say a couple of things about that. First of all, to see whether they are still alive... Is, I would suggest to you just a, an idiomatic expression. Idiom is just the way you use language. For example, if, if I was to put that in Gaelic, I think you would understand it straight away. And right away, you understand that he's not actually going to see whether they're alive. It's just a way of saying, How it is with them. Let me go and see. How it is with them. So. Which is true. But of course. He's not bound to tell. The whole. Well I'm not, I'm not going to put it like that. It's not, it's not that he's not bound to tell the whole truth. But he's not bound to tell everything. In connection with what God has told him. When Samuel was going to. Anoint David. Uh, he was very careful. How he announced his mission. Into Bethlehem to do precisely that. He said he was going to sacrifice to the Lord, which is true, although he was also going to do something else. We, we sometimes have to be, in fact, we always need to be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves. And Moses knows that it wouldn't do Jethro any good to know everything about the mission that God is sending him on. And in this he is wise and restrained. He just tells Jethro all that he needs to know. He is going to visit his people in Egypt. Now, let's learn from that. If the truth is required, the whole truth, speak the whole truth. If there is something that does not need to be known, then don't necessarily say it, in case it does more harm than good. We need wisdom for that. Perhaps we can consider it in more detail another time. I think it's also fair to say that Moses still might be a little afraid and Lacking assurance at this point. Now it's not surprising that someone who raised four objections to doing what God wanted him to do is actually still going to carry a measure of a lack of assurance. And uh, God actually gives him further assurance. He says to him that all those who sought your life are dead. The particular administration in Egypt has passed. There's a new administration interestingly, God doesn't tell him that this one was going to be just as difficult to deal with. Even the Lord acts on the same principle there. He just simply tells him that the ones that he knew and who were seeking his life are actually now dead. And it's a wonderful thing how, not just how the Lord grades what he tells us, but how patient the Lord is. Uh, Moses is still not sure, but the Lord in tenderness assures him, just keeps giving him the assurance, which at the end of the day is always coming back to the basic one, that I'll with you. That was the first assurance that he gave and in a way, it's the only one we need, the only one we should need, I <coughs> will be with you. And I suppose as a sign of his confidence in that, we're specifically told at the end of verse 20 that Moses took the rod of God in his hand. It's no longer called Moses rod that simple shepherd's staff. From now on it is to be called the rod of God. The symbol of God's authority accompanying Moses as God's spokesman. And the fact that it's called the rod of God here means that Moses is taking it like that. He He doesn't just decide to take a shepherd's rod to Egypt because what are you going to take a shepherd's rod to Egypt for? He's not going there to shepherd sheep. He's obviously taking it believing That God will be with him. That God will empower him and enable him. So important, uh, not just for a minister of the word to remember that, but as Christians, to remember that God will always equip us for our duties. We're always to depend upon his power. And as long as we work in his strength and in his enabling, which will always be proved by prayer and by reading of the word, then we need fear nothing. We need fear nothing at all. I will be with you. So going with the rod of God meant effectively that Moses was not going in his own strength, but going in the strength of God. He takes his wife Zipporah and his two sons with him, and they stay for a night at a resting place. And I understand from history that these resting places could be pretty primitive sometimes, just a a basic enclosure, a covering, with a a water supply nearby, just a a place to stay, a very crude or rude place to stay for a night. But it's there that this extremely mysterious incident occurs. And sometimes, of course, you read the Bible, you can read it fairly quickly, and you don't notice what it actually says. In other occasions, what it says just actually hits you between the eyes. And this verse is one of those. We just read simply that at the encampment, the Lord meets Moses and seeks to kill him. And what do you make of that? It's astonishing. The God who appeared to him and who called and commissioned him and the God who encouraged him to fulfill a task is now drawing near to him that evening and he seeks to kill him. He's obviously got some kind of hold on Moses in a way that incapacitates him in some way because we read in verse 26 that when the incident of circumcision was finished which I'll come to we're told in verse 26 that God let him go. Now On the face of it, that would seem to imply that the Lord has appeared here in in the physical form of a man. Just as he appeared, you remember wrestling with Jacob as a man. And remember that he wrestled with Jacob. Remember that he actually hit Jacob's thigh and put his thigh out of joint just by a touch. So that was a very physical handling that God gave Moses that night. So it would imply something like that, that the Lord has met him and has him in some kind of hold, but it's so serious that Moses knows that his own life is in danger. Perhaps that may lead us down another way, to think that Moses is suddenly afflicted by God with some kind of serious incapacitating illness. After all, just a short while before, Moses hand becomes leprous because God fills his hand with leprosy. That was one of the signs that God performed. Now, God may have made him entirely leprous. We don't know. All that matters is that God somehow came into the encampment that night, whether in a physical form or not, and brought Moses to a situation where he was absolutely near death. So much so that he was physically unable to circumcise his own son. Zipporah knows, unless she do it, that her husband's a dead man. So he's very obviously dying, and dying suddenly because God appoints it to be so. Strange. Moses, of course, knows that it's God. In whatever form this capacitating illness or blow comes, he knows it's God. It's not just something that happens. And he also knows that it's related to something in his own life that isn't right. Which probably indicates that he's known for some time that it's not right. But God comes now to deal with the matter as God does. Can we look at four things? Let's look at Moses' sin, second, why it happened. Third, the way God corrects it. And finally, the outcome of it. Just a word on all of these. First of all, the sin. What is it that Moses has done wrong? Well, the answer to that very simply is that he's neglected a sacrament. And he's neglected God's command regarding the sacrament. When God told Abraham to circumcise himself as a sign of his relationship with God, God also told him to then circumcise his child. And every generation of believers were to circumcise their children. Now, of course, if you didn't come to faith, you lost the right to circumcise your own child. But it's important... That this sign of the faith, this sign of the covenant be put on the children. And in fact God said that life depended on it. God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Every child, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised, that person shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Now of course we can relate to that. Under the new covenant of God, the sign of admission and belonging to the household of God is now baptism. And our children are to be baptized, if we are Christians ourselves of course, if we have come to faith. Sadly there are many people who just baptize children out of custom and tradition which actually brings God's judgment upon themselves because the abuse of any sacrament brings God's judgment. We see that in First Corinthians 11 where people were abusing the Lord's Supper. But on the other hand when it comes to a Christian it's not an option to baptize your child. It is actually a command that God lays upon you. Now Whatever the reason for Moses neglecting this in his family, and I'll suggest them in a moment, there's actually no excuse for doing so. He's the father of the household. He has been called now by God to liberate Israel from Egypt, which was not just a matter of being a political leader. It was a matter of calling them to real faith and obedience, to bring them back to the kind of relationship with God that they used to have before they went into bondage. It was, remember, that backsliddenness that left them in the condition that they were in, now groaning for deliverance under the lash of the world. But to come to them with a message to put that right involves that he himself put something right, something that's obviously not right in his own household. I mean, how would it look... If he was calling people to consecration and to faith and obedience when there was obviously something clearly glaring, not right, in his own household in connection with his own children. Now there's a general principle there that we all need uh, to remember. I think Paul puts it very well in his letter to the Romans when he says in um, verse 21, You who teach another... Are you not teaching yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you still steal? You who say don't commit adultery, are you committing adultery? It, of course, he's there speaking to, to Jewish people particularly, but he's really speaking to everybody. We, we've got to make sure, all of us, particular If we are Christians, <coughs> that there is nothing glaring or obvious in our lives that people will turn around and say, well, what about you? Now, of course, people will engage in what they call today "What about the enemy anyway. i mean it's quite possible for people to do that it's possible for people to say, "Well, did you see that or did you hear that that's all right. I mean nobody's perfect, and that must be remembered, but nonetheless is it possible that you tell or urge or call people to serving the Lord and following the Lord and loving the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and there is something glaring in your own life perhaps in connection with the Lord's day or connection with family or connection with your own life and it's glaring there and everybody can see it and perhaps you don't. You've stopped seeing it or you're excusing it and you don't think it's that important. In any case, Moses' sin is neglecting to keep a command of God, to put the sign of the covenant on his child. That raises the question, why did that happen? Now you could say, well, we're not told. Well, fair enough, we're not told, but it's still valid to ask. Why? Because Moses is a good man. Moses is a God-fearing man. Moses is a godly man as well as a good man. And it is his duty to do it. It's his responsibility. But you'll notice here that it's actually done by his wife. And that's a surprise. We have thought that Moses would be put into a position where he had to do this himself. But he actually doesn't. She's got to do it. You'll notice that she's not happy about it either. She casts the foreskin at his feet and speaks words that are, well, spoken in haste, spoken in a measure of anger, because it's obvious that she's not happy having to do what she's just done. So that leads us to this, that the reason Moses hasn't done this has something to do with her and indeed with her father Jethro. Let me just back up a little bit in connection with that. Jethro was a godly man too. And Jethro's family were a godly family. But it's important to notice that they're spiritually isolated. They're spiritually isolated. And they have been for well nigh four hundred years. They belong to the Midianites. Now the Midianites were descended from Abraham, you remember. When Sarah died, Abraham's wife, he married a woman called Keturah, and Midian was their child. And this tribe, or this people, are descended from him, and they were a nomadic tribe in the Sinaitic wilderness. And they were living amongst the Ishmaelites, who were not believers. They were not followers of God. And in a way, I suppose, it's not a surprise that 400 years later, Jethro and his family have perhaps forgotten some things. Maybe they just never knew certain things, because they were far away from the people of God. The contact was broken. I mean, you can find that yourself. Maybe you go to a place, let's say, for example, on holiday, and you, you meet a group of believers who are not in a larger group of believers, maybe their access to the preaching of the Word is pretty minimal. Maybe sometimes they don't even have full copies of Scripture. And it's possible, too, that they don't even have ministers who are well trained in the Word of God. And maybe they've been existing in that way for for some length of time, and, and you immediately notice some things that are not right. Some things that have been forgotten, or some things that are not done properly, or are just not done at all. Now, it's quite clear, I think, what would have happened in a situation like this, that Moses appears with understanding and with knowledge. And when he has a family, he wants to circumcise the boys. Jethro does not. Because it's their custom which they imbibed from the world to circumcise at the age of thirteen. That's what they were used to. And they had brought that custom into their own family. And Moses decides to yield, obviously. We know he must have yielded because it's not done. Now, some people would say, well, it was wise of him to yield, you know, because it wasn't that important, an issue. And maybe on an issue like that, it's sensitive to come along to Jethro, who is a priest, after all, uh, and... Uh, to to that believing community and say okay, well that's not your practice well I'd better just fall in line with it then some people say well that's good you see he's becoming all things to all men that's not what the Bible means when it tells us to become all things to all men when the Bible tells us to become all things to all men it means that when things are not commanded when they're indifferent that we fall in line so that we don't give offence It doesn't mean that we break the commands of God just to please the customs of people who might even be Christians. And that's really the main lesson from that point here. Beware of adopting unbiblical practices just because they have been adopted amongst people who are professing Christians and in fact may indeed be Christians. It's a longer sentence than I intended it, so let me say it again. Beware of adopting unbiblical practices, i.e., breaking God's commands, just because it's become accepted among people who are professing Christians and who may indeed be Christians. If a custom or tradition is in conflict with the Word of God, then it doesn't matter if Christians have adopted it, you don't. Neither do I. And very often in communities, people do tend to follow each other, and they can do it quite blindly. I've been quite surprised, really, since I came to the island to discover that in the last, (coughs) I don't know, ten years or so, pretty much a large majority of women worshipping seem to have removed a head covering when worshipping. I'm astonished how quickly and how easily that's happened. Women who are sometimes over 70 years old and who have been covering their heads since they were five in church suddenly remove their head covering. I notice that the men don't put it on. That's still a custom that keeps going because men remove their head coverings in worship. Um, But the women don't put it on any longer. That indicates that it must have been a tradition for them. In other words, they weren't doing it out of principle, they were just doing it as part of dressing up. Covering your head isn't part of dressing up at all. It's a response to a command that God has given in Scripture. And of course, taking the covering off has become a custom too now. It's become a custom and tradition very quickly. In other words, if you were to ask somebody perhaps 60 years ago, why are you covering your head? maybe they wouldn't have been able to give you an answer because it had become a tradition. It wasn't originally, but it had become one. But the same is true t- today. It's a new tradition established in the last ten years. In other words, if you go to them and say, why are you not now wearing a covering? They can't give you a reason for that either. What they would probably say is, well, because most, most women are removing it and maybe the minister's wife removed it. So there's no knowledge there's no understanding. It just becomes an accepted way of doing something. So if you know that you should cover your head as a woman, or as a man, that you should not, does that mean that you're okay as a man now to go in and cover your head and worship, or as a woman to remove it just because it's accepted? No. Because the Word of God speaks about it. That's exactly the kind of situation that you have here, you see. If it was a case of something else, something indifferent, well, you could say, okay, it's a custom here, I'll do it. But if God speaks about it, it doesn't come into that category anymore. Moses made the huge mistake of taking a command that God had given and said, well, I can just let it go because of the situation here. But it's not our duty to conform even to Christian communities. It's our duty to conform to the Word of God. But it may even be the case that Moses didn't even argue it through like that. I mean, that, that would be arguing it through. It's possible that Moses simply just was in the habit of giving way to his father-in-law or giving way to his wife. Which is, of course, a dangerous thing too. Even, even as believers, we must make sure that we don't love mother or father, husband or wife or son or daughter more than the Lord. That's one of the commands that Christ gave, which is very difficult for us to accept. But the Lord is crystal clear about it. We must make sure that our allegiance, even to our own family members, and these bonds are close, I mean these bonds are really, really close, and rightly so, but we must make sure that our bonds and these relationships are not stronger than our bond to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must obey God rather than man. Yeah, we all know that. But we must obey God rather than father or mother. Well, that's not so easy. But it's just as important. Is it the case that Moses simply just gives way? Because of who they are. In other words, it's not a theological argument. It's just giving in to pressure. Well, if so, of course, that's not good either. We're told in, by Paul in his letter to Timothy that um, particularly those who are going to rule in the house of God must be careful in that respect. He's got to be the husband of one wife. He's got to be self-controlled. His behavior has to be good. He's got to be both hospitable and able to teach and so on. He mustn't be greedy for money. He mustn't be a quarrelsome person. But he rules his own house. Well, having his children in submission with reverence. These are obviously children who are of an age to be still under his authority. Because if a man does not know how to rule his own church, how can he take care of the church of God? Eli, famously in the Old Testament, was like this. He had two sons in the priesthood and he himself was the high priest. (coughs) He had two sons in the priesthood who had started to abuse the priesthood for their own selfish gain, even to the extent of sleeping with women in the quarters of the tabernacle and also extracting wealth from the people that they had no right to. Eli rebuked them, but that's all he actually did and he had the power to do more now sometimes in life you can't do more for example if your family are grown up there's not much more you can say than to rebuke and take the matter to God in prayer most of us have been there most of you might be there, I hope not but you, you might be there where they grow up there's nothing you can do except rebuke in love and kindness when, when the opportunity there a God given opportunity and just take the matter to God in prayer there's not much more you can do but Eli could of course because the two sons were in the priesthood over which he was the supervisor and he just he just couldn't bring himself to put them out of it. Now it's easy for us to take a, a real high ground and say, oh well, why didn't he do that? But sometimes a lot of these things, even when you know they're right, just aren't easy. They were his own sons. And I'm sure there was a failure to discipline them from their childhood, perhaps. But it had to be done. It was the priesthood that was being degraded. It was the house of God that was being degraded. In fact, so much so that we're being told in First Samuel 2 that people found it difficult to go to church because of what the priests had become. We're told that very specifically. And the sad thing is that that was on Eli's shoulders and he was a good man. If God came to him one night in a dream through Samuel and told him that he had been warned enough, God says to him, why are you honoring your sons more than me? That's that's what God actually said to him. Why are you honoring your sons more than me? Because that's what you're actually doing. And sometimes sometimes God just does take a thing home to us very, very starkly. With just one or two words and, and we just see it for what it is. And Moses was like that. He was neglecting God's command. Whether it was community pressure or pressure in the house, he didn't circumcise his child. What is the result? Well, the Lord does what he does to us in his mercy. He corrects us. At least to good Christians he does. As the Bible tells us, it's a good thing to be chastised because... God chastises his people. He cares enough for them to chastise them. As many as I love, God says, I rebuke and I chase them. But why doesn't he serve why doesn't he chastise Sipara? The short answer to that is because it's Moses' responsibility. Even if she's the one who doesn't want it done, it's his responsibility. That reminds us as fathers that we are ultimately responsible for the spiritual direction of our homes. And sometimes I see adherent fathers do a a better job at showing an example to their children than members. I've seen that for many years. I've seen adherent people being more diligent bringing their children to church than some people who are members. But at the end of the day, the responsibility is the fathers. In some ways, the big question is why is it so severe? Why this sudden recitation? Why is Moses at death's door? To the point where Moses can't even do the act himself, but he pleads to his wife and says, this condition I'm in, which by the way makes me feel that there was no third person actually visible. I don't think Zipporah is conscious of the visible presence of God here. I think she is dealing with her husband. But her husband says that the hand of God is on him. Maybe he's even gasping for breath. We don't know. But the hand of God is upon me. And he says to her, I'm going to die and I'm going to die very soon unless this issue is dealt with. Why is is it so severe so suddenly? Well, let me say three things, just briefly. First of all, because the commandment was clear. It's not as though it was difficult. Moses knew what he should do. The second reason is because his influence was going to be so great. As I touched on earlier, he was going to appear to Israel and what weight would his word carry if he hadn't even put the sign of circumcision on his own child? And sometimes there are things in our lives that just close our mouths before we open them. But the third thing is that we shouldn't assume that God's chastisement wasn't gradual I mean God's chastisement usually is gradual, like he said in Hosea 6 I will come to you like a moth and then he says I'll come to you like a lion um, a moth nibbles away nibbles away at your comfort nibbles away at your wealth he just nibbles around the place and, and God does that sometimes he just nibbles away because he's, trying, he's getting your attention he's calling you to something but if if, if, you, if you don't hear his word you'll feel it because one of these days he will come to us as a lion it's more than likely that Moses discussed this with Zipporah a hundred times it's sad to say every time it was spoken about it was not done but God doesn't let it go because there's a work to be done and so he brings it to our head and that's the way God does things. Even when you're being converted, you know, it's 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 amazing how God speaks to you in lots of little ways. And he does it perhaps very often anyway he does. I know God can work suddenly, but very often he, he does it by just speaking to you in, in various ways in your providence, sometimes through your family, sometimes through what you're hearing in church, sometimes through what you're reading. He he's just working away and then he brings it to a head he always does even people who have grown up perhaps in in, uh, Christian homes and who have perhaps been following the Lord as far as they know since they were children he still seems to bring you to a head he still seems to bring you to a point where a decision is made and something has to happen something's got to give and the Lord's got to be decisively accepted and he's got to be decisively chosen and you've got to decisively take the cross and move on Well, it's like this. There have probably been little chastisements before. But God says, this is something that needs dealing with now. It's got to be put right. Friend, I wonder if you're like that yourself. You've been coming week by week to the house of God. And God says, it's time. Put this right yourself. Put this right in your own life. Put this right in your family. Put yourself right with me. How is the situation resolved? Well, it's resolved, as it always is, by repentance and obedience. The the solutions to these things are very quick and easy. It's just the sheer difficulty we have in, in getting to grips with applying that. God is only interested in putting us right. And if we put a thing right, God is pleased with that. Obedience just restores the balance. God puts Zipporah into a place where she has to perform it herself. And she does it. Now, she's not happy doing it. She speaks angrily. And after all, that's confronting her with an issue. Is is she really accepting Moses' spiritual headship in her life? Is she accepting Moses' headship in the family? Has she been so so used to the Midianite way of doing things, even in a Christian household that she's finding it difficult to accept Moses' knowledge of the word of God and God's call on Moses' life. But but that's no use. If she's going to go with him down to Egypt, that's no use. It's no use to be at Moses' shoulder saying, well, that's not the way it's going to be. Sometimes we do have difficulty in accepting the roles that God gives us in life. But we need to. Period. We need to. And she has got to accept the spiritual headship of Moses and the family. Now the interesting thing is that we know that Zipporah did not complete the journey down to Egypt. She actually went back home. And she took her two sons with her. We know that because four months later. If you move forward 13 chapters, you're only going forward four months. But if you go to Exodus 18... Four months later, when Moses is bringing Israel out, when he has brought Israel out into the wilderness, who comes to meet him but his father-in-law and his family? Just read at verse 1 here. Exodus 18. We'll just read um, two verses, really. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. That's the Exodus. That the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And notice this. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he, that is Moses, had sent her back. With her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershon, and the name of the other was Eliezer. Moses had sent her back. Why? Well, it seems to me quite obvious. Sometimes the Bible tells us things very plainly, at other times it requires us to join the dots. Uh, so, some people find difficulty with that. Well, why, why isn't God's word always uh, very, very plain? Well, in its own way it is plain, but God has seen fit to speak to us sometimes in poetry, sometimes in law, sometimes in a romance, uh, sometimes in Proverbs. Uh, sometimes in straightforward history, God said everything that He wants to say in lots of different ways to interest absolutely everybody. But sometimes he does want us to join dots and the dots are very clear. Moses was sent. Moses sent his wife back home at this particular point. Why? Because her heart was obviously not in it. By the way, notice that that doesn't free Moses from his obligation. You'd think, in a way, it would. You'd think Moses could say, well, actually, my wife's not in this. But it doesn't matter. And on this occasion, God hasn't worked at both ends of the line. That's what I meant earlier. We expect God to work both ends of the line. He usually works both ends of the line. He doesn't always work both ends of the line. He's put a call into Moses' heart, but it's not in Zipporah's. Moses recognises this, though, and he sends her home. It's not dismissing her. That would be arrogant. Um, It's a misunderstanding of what's happened. I'm sure Moses, as a a loving and godly husband, said to his wife, Your heart is not in this. Your understanding is not in this. Please just go back. Go back with your father and take the sons. And Moses would have prayed over this matter. And he prayed earnestly over this matter. And unsure four months later that her heart had been changed. That her heart had been changed. And that's very often what God is calling us to. You know when you discover that God hasn't worked. Let's say God was calling yourself to the ministry. And your wife wasn't inclined. Take it to God. Tell her to take it to God. If she doesn't take it to God, you take it to God. And see how God will work it out. So Moses has something in his own life that needs to be sorted out before he can speak to others. And maybe as a Christian today, you're wondering about your own witness. Maybe it's not as effective as it should be. Maybe with me too. And maybe God's saying, Ah, but is there not this that you need to put right? May the Lord use even this message to bring it to a head for yourself and maybe for me and put our house right before the Lord. Let's stand to call on God's name today. O oh Lord, O oh God, we see that even... In a godly home there may be a measure of neglect and we can also see a wife speaking out of turn to her own husband and on other occasions a husband out of turn to his own wife. And it is good for us that these things are recorded and recorded for our benefit and for our encouragement. There are some things in you, word, that we are to emulate. Other things are there to warn us and to help us avoid things. There are other things there so that we can recognize that we have done them and we can repent of them. These things are all provisions of grace and mercy for which uh, we give you thanks and praise. Help us then to learn and apply all that you teach us. Remembering that we ourselves may be the ones who come short. It is easy often to find a flaw in another. But how difficult to find it in ourselves. And even when we do, we dress it up and disguise it. Sometimes even as a virtue. Oh, help us in these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Our last <clears throat> psalm in God's praises, Psalm 119, and at verse 44. <clears throat> In verse 43, uh, David prays that God would not take the word of truth out of his mouth. That he would always be able to speak for God. Because he says, I rely on your judgments. In verse 44, I'll keep your law continually. And since, "sith" is an old, old word for since. Since I seek your precepts, I will walk at liberty. And then in verse 46, well... This takes us into the territory that Moses was in, having to speak to Pharaoh. I'll speak thy word to kings, and I with shame shall not be moved, and will delight myself always in thy laws which I loved. You'll notice how keeping God's word is related there to speaking it to the kings. To thy commandments which I loved, my hands lift up I will, and I will also meditate upon them Thy statutes still. These last three stanzas. Let's start and sing them. Oh shall I keep all thy words by my tongue?